Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we come into your presence, and we thank you that you welcome us here. Oh, Lord, keep our hearts tender and sensitive to you. Work in us that which you desire. And so we say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I never take for granted a group of people who come out in the midst of a cold and rainy morning. Thank you very, very much for making the effort and for being here. If you were tempted to sleep in and say, oh, but I have to come, it's the annual meeting, I'm glad you made the effort. When I read the Nehemiah passage about this incredible moment of both conviction and restoration, I thought immediately of what we do in terms of the gospel procession. You see, the temple in Jerusalem had literally fallen down in the midst of terrible battles, and Nehemiah had permission to go and organize the rebuilding of the city, the reconstruction of the wall, the recollecting, as it were, of the people of God into a community again. It wasn't just an architectural restoration project after a bad battle. It was actually the reconfiguration of a people. And the climax of what happened is what we heard just now, where Ezra the scribe goes and gets the scroll of the book, the Torah, the book of the law, that which literally identifies the people of Israel. And as soon as he steps up on the platform to read, all of the people stand up. Sound familiar? As the gospel is going down the aisle. And as he begins to read it, people weep because it's like a welcoming home. It's the reaffirmation of all that they are, all that they have longed for, and all that they hope to be as the people of God. And the leaders are right to say, this is a new beginning. Go, share with those who are in need, eat and drink, celebrate. Something new has happened, a restoration is occurring in our midst. So it is with us when the gospel book comes down the aisle, we stand up. And the reason we stand up is because it's a way of saying liturgically, even to Jesus, there is no one like you. There is no one beside you. We are here to honor you and to hear again your words to us. And as the deacon, of course, makes her way all the way down the aisle and into the center of the nave. It is the reminder that the, the Word goes out. It goes out into the world. It's actually the very nature of the Word of God to continue to go out. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost, and the Word is read. And of course, our response is, glory to you, praise to you. And if you're of that high church persuasion, and I love the gesture, we reverence just like this. It's a way of saying, just as they said, only it's in our hearts, amen. Amen. So be it. Let it be so. It's actually both an act of reverence 
And it's also an act of commitment. It's a commitment to say the word that has come into our midst is the word that I choose by God's grace to receive. I, I am His. I belong to Him. Because you see, the pronunciation of the gospel is both a declaration of what is, but it is an also an invitation to receive and to take one's place in the body saying yes to the word that God speaks to us through the gospel reading. And as a result, it's a commitment. It's a commitment to express and to be. Even as the gospel goes down the aisle and out into the people, it is our commitment as we receive it to say, yes, we will go out there. We will be bearers of that which we have heard. Amen. Amen. But because we say praise to you, Lord Christ, it is our desire that we not go out there and sort of make a name for ourselves. It's our desire that we bear something that is far more important than anything that we might say, giving witness to one who is far more important than anyone we will ever become. It is a witness to Jesus, to His Word, and who He is as the Lamb of God who is taking away the sins of the world. Now, why do I say all of that? Well, I say all of that because I love it. It's true. And it affirms deep, profound things that I believe with all of my heart. But in some ways, that's the reception not just of what we heard every Sunday, but it's particularly poignant in what it is that we hear this morning. The collect invites us to think that way. Give us grace to answer readily the call of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, if we're paying attention to the collect, somehow I hope our ears are being pricked to say, call? What call? What would you have me do? Here am I, Lord, send me. In fact, I said to those who are being confirmed and received for the service, that who they are called, and it's true for we, us too, is that we're called servants. And it's about prayers for them that they might perform a service as servants. That's the essence of what it means to be confirmed. It's not, as I said to them, it's not just an affiliation commitment. Yeah, I want to be more deeply embedded into the life of the Episcopal Church. It's not merely a commitment to a state of beliefs, although it is actually both of those. Yes, I believe, we say in that portion of the creed. But it's also a commitment to do something. Because a servant, by the very nature of the title, means someone who performs a service, right? That's just logical. So I say to them, this is actually a commitment to do something. And to ask God, okay, in the light of this commitment I'm making, what, it is that you, what, what is it that you would have me do? So again, we're in this call mode, are we not? We're thinking about what has been proclaimed to us in the gospel reading and how we particularly interact, become, think about, receive, wrestle with the things that the Scripture says and teaches. It's meant to be that. You see, the, anything, the Scripture is anything but a kind of recitation that sort of, I don't know, that we take less seriously 
or we've heard it so often that we think we already understand what it means, or that we're in a kind of avoidance behavior. Soren Kierkegaard, uh, the 20th century Danish philosopher, railing against the Danish church, said something that I think is pretty outlandish, but there's something about it that pricks me. He said, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is easy to understand, but as Christians, we are a bunch of scheming swindlers. How about that? We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. So that there can be, you see, in the, the hearing of the Scripture, an act of avoidance. So to answer readily, the call actually begins to touch on, Lord, help me in my hearing. Because I think all of us have a certain set of filters around what we choose to hear and not hear in terms of what the Scripture says. It's uh, Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, talks about having this inner conversation that determines in many ways what we hear and what we don't hear in terms of the Scripture. And it's worth it to actually think about what kinds of preconditions exist in me that cause me to say the yes to some parts of the Scripture and all of a sudden go, that's very obscure and hard to understand in terms of others, as an act of avoidance behavior. It's not that sometimes, this, I disagree with Kierkegaard, it's not that some of the Scriptures aren't obscure and hard to understand, but we can play out this kind of inner game with ourselves where we walk away unchallenged. I can't remember who said it, but there are times where if we're really wrestling with the Bible, we should wake up in the middle of the night. What is being said? How can this in fact be true. The wrestling with it, the capacity to be able to allow the Word in, to challenge, to disturb, as well as comfort and to strengthen. You see, a part of what we see in Jesus is this huge challenge to our own personal autonomy, to our right, if we're calling ourselves believers anyway, our right to live life by our terms, and to decide, as it were, sometimes quite apart from the Scripture, but certainly in line with much of our culture, where I say yes and where I say no, so that in fact culture becomes the arbiter, how I was brought up, what I have been taught to believe to be true, that which I've accepted or rejected as I've wrestled with those childish assumptions as an adult, and even more importantly, the childlike voices that often capture my adult imagination when I am not looking. All of that faces us as we hear Jesus' words quoting this configuration of quotes from the book of Isaiah in the gospel reading. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. How do I know that I have these filters that, in essence, protect me from the impact and the power of the Scripture? 
It is to that extent that they are active that I feel a certain inner indifference. If there is indifference in the presence of the Scripture, that's a really good indicator that there's a part of me that's going, uh-uh, I don't want that. Because indifference is often, often a cover from the fear of being challenged, the fear of having to think too deeply about that which might bring me some discomfort, even if the end result through the discomfort is a place of profound comfort. You see, the, the, ch the challenge and the downside, as it were, of autonomy is that I have to find a way to make peace with my own fears. Learn to live with my own hurts. Because to say, uh-uh, actually robs me from the capacity to receive the perfect love that casts out all fears. To actually make room for the one who comes to heal the brokenhearted and to set the captives free. The downside of autonomy is to be, in essence, emotionally frozen in the presence of God. Because, in fact, to allow such a word in, while it humbles and challenges and, like the Israelites, occasionally puts us on our faces before God, is that a breakage, a kind of interior breakage begins to occur inside of us. Our inadequacies come roaring up to the surface. And all of a sudden, as I read that Scripture, I begin to say, who are the poor? By God, it's me. It has nothing to do with my bank account. It has everything to do with the fact that autonomy is, in fact, a profoundly impoverished place to live. And that the captives, the blind, the oppressed actually are profound descriptions of my own inner life. And I need someone, a liberator, to come and set me free from, as the prayer book says, the bondage of my sins and give to me that abundant life, the liberty of that abundant life. And when my heart begins to break like that, when I begin to see in a whole new way the deep need that I have, that these aren't somebody else, this is me, then something new begins to stir inside of my heart. The hard ground of my own inner life needs to be broken up, the rocks pulled aside so that the seeds of mercy can be embedded into the heart of my life, and I begin to experience a new way, a tenderness in the presence of God rather than an indifference. The hunger, I want to know you, arises out of my soul. And when that happens, that's when real liberation begins. Because not only at that point do I begin to become one who is being healed by the great mercy of God, the scales fall off my eyes, and I begin to see that the thing I've heard all my life, if I've been in the church, but never knew how to live out 
that it's not just something to receive, but it's something to express because I actually begin to see those around me who walk in the same places of darkness. And they could be emotional. They could be economical. They could be sociological. I begin to see things, people, in ways that I never actually begin to see before, and I can't sit still. God begins to impel me in ways that I never, ever could have imagined. My heart begins to become tender in ways that I never, ever thought possible, sometimes that I didn't even want. I, I still remember one time, I was sitting in Reagan International Airport. I had time on my hands. And I was sitting, and honestly, I was praying. I was getting ready to go take off, and can't remember what for, but I knew it was asking, going to ask a lot. And I was asking God, Lord, for this one, I need all the strength I can get. And I opened my eyes, and all of a sudden, of course, there's a sea of people tossed to and fro, but I began to see something that I'd never noticed before. I saw the sadness. I saw the hard difficulty that people have with life. I'm like 23. This has never happened to me. And I almost couldn't stand it. It was almost too much. But I learned later that it really was a sign that God was, in fact, equipping me for what I needed to do once I got off the plane on the other side of that flight. You see, to be a servant is someone who sees in here. Not just here, but in here. And out of that, just acts. They are impelled by the Spirit of God. So, beloved, on this cold, rainy, wet Sunday morning, as we think about who God has asked us to be, let's not start with the job description, but instead ask the deeper question, which is, Lord, what would you have be me become? And ask God to break up the hard places inside to get rid of the indifference that is actually toxic and to work in me and you a kind of inner tenderness that really will cause us to say, here I am, send me. Amen.